Tonight's guest is a philosopher firmly rooted in the humanist camp. He has written the foreword to Ald Nerdrum's latest book, From an Aristotelian Perspective. And he is soon to launch the new net-based magazine, Civilization. His goal is to make painting great again. Karl Korsnes, welcome to the Cave of Apelles. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Tonight, we have quite a bit to cover. We'll be talking about Aristotle's poetics. Yes. Its importance to the Renaissance. And uh, not the least, its importance for Titian as a painter. How the poetics was not seen as a dry text, but something that really could help you become a better storyteller. And something I was not aware of was the role of Plato also, who nearly toppled the whole idea of the Renaissance, but it was saved by Mr. Aristotle. Um, but first, you, as I mentioned, wrote the foreword to Odnerdom's latest book. You've entitled it Making Painting Great Again. I take it you find that painting is not great as it is now. That's true. Um, and by that, I mean that painting as a discipline is ruined. Mm -hmm. And of course not all paintings, but the majority of painting or a certain value system of painting. Mm -hmm. And that is what m uh, much of the introduction is about, um, is that there are two value systems that one can regard a painting to belong into one of them. And um, just to make, uh, just to mention a brief story of how I became, uh, how I came into Odin Redrum's Kitsch philosophy. Yeah, please do. Yeah. It was my first uh, class in aesthetics at the university, at Westchester University. We had a great um, uh, professor in aesthetics. And during the first class, we were supposed to... Uh, actually, during all classes, we were supposed to have five minutes at the end of each class, writing just what popped down into our heads. It could be something we have thought about during the week, it could be something we learned, some questions we had or whatever. But during that first class, we were supposed to write and we had learned nothing. I almost didn't know, because it was the first class, mm -hmm. I almost didn't know what aesthetics was. I was, how can you philosophize about art? Mm -hmm. So we were asked, what is art? Write down what you think it is. Mm -hmm. And there's no correct or wrong answer. You will not be graded on this. And I sat for a long time and I was like, well, art is, it was really hard. I used more than five minutes on writing nothing. And I started with the sentence, everything can be art. I have no idea where it came from, but that was what I wrote mm -hmm. because it has that is what society teaches one in, in a way. Because one has visited museums and you can see certain objects that are objects in use. 
that suddenly is art. So I, it was like, okay, a young student, I have to make certain, uh, sure that all um, uh, everything is covered. Show that you're a philosopher. Yes, right. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, but, but then again, writing that, well, everything can be art. And then I started with some, uh, but it has to be some intention behind it, or it has to be, uh, uh, it has to be a meaning or, or something like that. I, I don't remember, but I remember that first sentence. Mm. And there was something inside me that was like, this is, not right although i knew it was right really because it is right in a way if you ask the owner of a museum mm -hmm. so uh but what i found to be wrong was that um was that it's just bizarre to compare uh rembrandt to a cigar Mm. It, it, it sounds stupid, silly just to mention it. Mm. And that is what it is. So I was like, well, but an object like a cigar can be a work of art, but it is something that just didn't correspond. And then uh, after going through a crisis, I read um, <laughs> Dark Knight of the Soul. Yeah. <laughs> I read Odnerdrum's uh, philosophy. And much made sense yeah. because he doesn't say that there is something that is the proper thing to do, but that there are two value systems from which you can uh, judge or view a painting mm. or a sculpture or all this, uh, or a piece of music or a theater. And he has called it kitsch because many of those values that are looked down upon today or according to the uh, uh, aesthetics of fine art are such as sentimentality or unoriginality and craft were values back in ancient Greece. Considered positive. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and um, so, for instance, sentimentality, if you are sentimental or pathetic. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's not a not, um, positive. <laughs> that is not a... Uh, compliment. It's yeah. not a compliment to a piece of art. <laughs> what a pathetic, pathetic painting. Mm. But back in ancient Greece, it was pathos. Mm. It was supposed to evoke strong emotions. And if I may interject... Uh, apparently, the, the uh, etymology of it, it, uh, it means physical suffering. Mm. You have that story of um, uh, which sculptor was that? He made a woman who was about to die and in the face he puts uh, more silver into the metal so that she will be more pale. Yeah. And you sort of see the blood sort of going, <laughs> sinking. Mm -hmm. mm. And that's to the sentimental or pathetic effect. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and then comes, um, uh, yeah, as you said, the feelings or the emotions that are awakened are real or physical. It's, it's, it's not something that mm. uh, is like a polite uh, um, 
sympathy towards right. something. It's <laughs> like, um, uh, oh, I really feel bad for those that are, uh, yeah, and some people that you do not relate to or anything, but you see in the news someone, uh, if their house is being destroyed by a hurricane, it's like, that is really sad. Yeah. It's like an objective statement. And it is sad, of course, it's terrible. But it's not the real emotion. Of course, some people are very emotional uh, beings. But to most people watching the news, you get sort of a distance to it. But um, so, you, so you're grading so the degree of being gripped by it. Mm -hmm. I, I think um, uh, Jose Ortega y Garcia, the Spanish sociologist, talks about... I'm, I might be misquoting him because it's some while ago I read what he wrote, but he talks about it almost in in terms of rape. That yeah. the the uh, the work takes you, mm. and that, of course he sees it as negative. But yeah. so you you had you had an understanding of something was wrong with the yeah. comparison here, and yeah, and to uh, I'm uh, uh, I'm glad that you're uh, uh, taking me back on track because I'm. <laughs> All That's my there. job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so uh, to use those three examples, mm -hmm. uh, sentimentality is uh, regarded as, was regarded as a compliment back in ancient Greece. Nerdrum considers it a compliment, mm -hmm. but today it's not. Or in modern uh, aesthetics or in fine art. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, then you have as uh, considering a, uh, it a craft. It's a virtue, according to the ancient Greece, you were supposed to use uh, to good craftsmanship was a good way of um, awaking emotions in the audience. You had to know how to um, how to make figures in paintings or sculpture that, for instance, were crying mm. because then you are awaking emotions in the audience. Then you had to know the physics of the body and and you had to know the craftsmanship of how to uh, present that or to represent that in a painting or in a sculpture or whatever but in the painting today or in the modern painting craft is not at least as important mm. in some cases it's not important at all but it's not the main uh, value and um, nerd, what made sense to me when I was rep, uh, presented to this value system is that you can regard a painting from different perspectives. So to use right. an example, uh, Sick Girl by Monk. Odnerdrum has said it himself, but, according, uh, but if you uh, uh, brought Aristotle back here, what would he play, uh, say were the values of sick girl. It awakes strong emotions mm. and pathos. It's very sentimental. It's very pathetic. Mm. It's a girl dying and you see uh, and, and you are in the room with her the last moment and it's very well crafted and it's very unoriginal. It's death. It's one of the eternal subjects. Yeah. Love, death and life. And just to finish my point, 
you can regard it from another uh, perspective as well. Yeah. Use another value system yeah. to take the modernist art. You do not look at the craft very much. It's not very important. It's more that, well, it's original because it was not done at that time. And that's correct. One can say that it was not uh, a very common kind of painting. The technique, you mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the technique at that time mm. was because not the very was, common. Because uh, was, was very normal. Yes. The yes. Uh, so, but that is the values that you uh, extract from the painting from that other value system. And also uh, so that it's uh, original, that the craft doesn't matter very much. And uh, you do not look at the sentimentality, for instance, mm. but you look at other system. Is there a message there? <clears throat> Is there some kind of... Um, uh, yeah, either political message or is there something that represents that uh, time, for instance? Mm. So, well, it can say something about um, uh, it can say something about society at that time that uh, well, a lot of young people died or something. Mm. Mm. So, um, uh, and of course, that it's, you see it as a cultural historical document. Uh, yeah, more or either less. as a yeah. culture uh, historical document or as something that he was expressing his sorrow in a way. Mm -hmm. That, but the point is that they do not look as much at the product, the painting itself, but yeah. what is behind it. But you also, when you say that uh, an expression of his suffering, uh, that strikes me because uh, this is one of the things that I talked with uh, Sebastian Salvo about, uh, and also Boris Koller, uh, how they do not talk about the sick girl as an expression of an archetype. They do not see the timeless situation in there, this loss of this human human uh, being. Mm. Um, but I think. Uh, this is a, a quite important point. The, the <clears throat> unconscious prejudices that you are uh, that you grow up with, that you are accustomed to. Uh, I remember thinking. I think this was in my teens. And where the hell did it come from? That you know emotions are abstract. So of course they can be best represented in an abstract painting. Mm -hmm. That 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 was. And, and I hadn't read. German philosophy at the time, but that was just something that that, that uh, you know you um, what a friend of mine calls it. Uh, you you learn by osmosis. You just <laughs> you just live in that culture, um, and so you don't see the qualities that are actually there. Uh, but one thing that uh, that strikes me is the the necessity of being conscious about what you're doing about. On about reading things, on aesthetics, reading well Aristotle, to know what why you're actually doing what you're doing as a painter or a, or a dramatist or whatever. And I guess that's one thing that you're talking about also in the foreword, uh, how Ad Nerdrum saw these values as positive. What was denied? What was denounced as kitsch, mm -hmm. and then sort of traces it back to the Greek or Roman ideas, or, or Greek, basically, Greek ideas and Greek virtues, uh, and then has become increasingly concerned with Aristotle in the, in the later years. Can you say a little bit about, uh, about that? Yeah, the, the point that you mentioned is, 
to me, you're asking what is the importance of philosophy. Yeah. And I would say that the, as I have mentioned before, uh, the ignorant man would say something, st a sentence starting with the word just. So in the case of painting, it would be just paint. Right. Or it would be in dancing, just dance. Yeah. Or just write. Or if you take it further, to make it more bizarre, you could say, a, tell a president, just rule. <laughs> yeah. Just do something. Yeah. And in, in some cases, it's appropriate or uh, it, it can be fitting to mm. say just. For instance, in, in uh, today's Western society, the tradition of dancing mm. has, is almost dead. The traditional dances, they are kept alive in small communities, but compared to just like 200 years ago or mm. something, it's, it's almost non-existing. Mm. So when the youth uh, are having a fun time today and dancing, uh, and they are dancing, they're not dancing uh, as they have learned mm. in a way. Mm. They're just moving their bodies. And in that case, it is not important how you move your body or how you dance. And then you can say, just dance mm. because you really don't care. <laughs> But then again, you wouldn't say that to a president or to a prime minister, just rule, just or to someone that has an important thing to do. So to me, philosophy is something or to philosophize about something is something you do about something that you care about. Right. So if you really do care about dancing, you can philosophize about it. What is it about moving your bodies together? What is that that makes it a pleasurable experience? And that was what Aristotle did with poetry. Mm. When we're drifting then, then uh, directly into what he writes in the poetics. Um, and uh, I wanted to do that <clears throat> through through uh, Thomas Plutfarkin's book, Titian and, and Tragic Painting. And, uh, you know, it strikes me when, when I r read that book, uh, if we're talking about the, the contemporary time of uh, Titian, especially in the first half of the 16th century, there's very little writing about painting. And it is a, uh, some decades where Plato is quite dominant. Mm -hmm. And then you get the translation of the poetics coming in. I think it was translated as early as the 30s, perhaps, but it gets increasing influence in the 1540s and, and onwards. And he brings in a respect for imitation mm -hmm. of... Uh, mimesis and and uh, uh, being able to conjure up an image that is vivid that is lifelike yeah and he talks about and I think uh, uh, this has been so fundamental 
fundamentally important to the Renaissance that if you did not have Aristotle, Plato might very well have toppled the whole thing. And um, an important thing for Aristotle then is <clears throat> the need to uh, create tragedies, to craft tragedy, tragedies. Mm. So perhaps we could first talk about what is a tragedy and why is it important for a human being to engage in that, read a tragedy, look at a painting which is a tragedy. Yeah. Just one thing that, uh, that uh, came into my mind when we talk about Plato and uh, Aristotle taking over mm. uh, after Plato mm. was that when uh, Plato was um, during the before the Renaissance had started, what people were interested in or what the, the main discussion within painting was, was that should it be fictional or should it be historical? Right. Because, and there you get the moral perspective. Should it be something true or should it be something that is not true that you have made up yourself? And I guess some painters, some painters, some philosophers were very engaged in it, that yeah. it should never be something you made up yourself or vice versa. Um, and um, then Aristotle comes and say, it's not of any importance. <laughs> like, who cares? <laughs> Couldn't care less. It's about the quality. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. that, that's what it brings in because I, th this is one thing that Petrarchan is, is talking about how uh, the need to, to um, uh, uh, justify uh, what we today call classical figurative painting, representational painting, uh, you need to justify it through referring to some kind of morale. Mm -hmm. It's not enough that it's well-crafted and, and convincing. And that's one thing that the, the influence of Plato led to, that uh, humanists would argue for the importance of, uh, of uh, um, imitation by saying that this is an imitation of the idea mm -hmm. of a human being. Yeah. So they make it into a, a, uh, something for a higher goal, which is not about your... your uh, experience of it mm -hmm. uh, or how it affects you and then I guess well Aristotle releases that pressure yeah we humans are very strange creatures there are so many uh, uh, so many irrational aspects of our behavior and one of them is watching tragedy and enjoying it mm. and here comes yet another difference between plato and aristotle plato sees this and, and think this is just irrational mm. to have an enjoyable experience from seeing uh, or to enjoy the pity and terror mm. that you feel uh, when watching a tragedy. It's irrational. And therefore, I am denying it. Mm. 
Well, also for and strictly political reasons. Yeah. In, in I, his case. Yes, in, in his case it's um, political. But it seems that it was more personal as well. That he actually found it... That he found this irrationality in a way disgusting mm. or something that it was like not uh, it it was uninviting mm. what aristotle does is that he i think he also sees this that it's irrational but he takes that as, as well that's how it is and instead of denying it he tries to explain it mm. and so he said well we enjoy having this reaction of pity and terror. How is this so? Like, why is this the case? And he comes up with the explanation of catharsis. Right. Which is the end point of uh, watching tragedy. Mm. Or something tragic. And uh, uh, catharsis is... Um, uh, always translating those Greek terms, but it's uh, some kind of uh, uh, release or cleansing in mm. a way mm. of emotions. But then uh, there are different uh, explanations to what catharsis is. Yeah, and I think uh, what um, Malcolm Heath does in this uh, edition, he talks about it, uh, mentioning that, that the poetics is not a, a complete book, but that that um, uh, catharsis is not about ending the, these emotions, stopping them, but about uh, um, you know changing it and making it uh, so that you are you don't do not feel them excessively in the wrong time towards the wrong things or or whatever. Yeah. So what we are uh, talking about here is then that there's a certain function of of not of a didactic statement but that that watching a tragedy is some is somehow something you can learn from mm -hmm. i mean like if you comp contrast two two versions of it just to, to illustrate that it's not about propaganda mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> i i heard about this north korean opera which was about a North Korean flower girl who was raped by an American soldier. So you know who is the good guy and who is the, the bad guy, right? Uh, it's almost to the point where his worst atrocity is not the rape, but the fact that he's American. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you have uh, Ilya Repinsk, Ivan the Terrible, killing his son. And then you have the, the specific moment where he understands that he has killed his own son and it can never be uh, made good again. Mm. And when you see such a painting, that can lead you to an experience where you think, well, I have to be careful not to experience those sleepless nights that awaits Ivan in that situation. And then perhaps you can think about, well, how do I uh, uh, treat other people mm. around me? Yeah. Yeah, I think that one theory that you mentioned is that, uh, as I have understood it, 
you watch the tragedy, you see uh, uh, Oedipus on stage uh, having um, uh, his... Uh, the, the destiny has been fulfilled, he ended up killing his father and marrying his mother and he's ripping out his eyes. Mm. And you're enjoying watching that, mm. feeling that uh, pity because that you feel you recognize his sorrow mm. and uh, despair and you feel terror because you think that could be me because he is a good character mm. and people often regard themselves as good yeah uh, and so that theory is that by being um, presented to those uh, or experiencing those extreme emotions because that usually that's not what happened to a common man mm -hmm. <laughs> that you end up killing your father and marrying your mother it's not common <laughs> no it's <laughs> and um so um being exposed to those experiences and feelings because they are according to aristotle they are real mm. it's not something you watch on the news they are real because you experience them mm. that releases some of the uh, in a way, as I read that theory, some of the tensions that you have uh, f for that pity. If you have some uh, terror in your uh, heart carrying that with you and it watches that, it you get it so strongly that when it's done, it, yeah. you feel better. Yeah, it's like well, if you've been crying, you feel much better afterwards. So. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's not the case with me. Uh, oh. but my but my girlfriend she's like oh uh, after crying it feels so good and i'm like it just feels terrible <laughs> okay uh, we'll do that I, in a separate <laughs> interview <laughs> but i i uh, i do enjoy watching uh, uh tragedies i yeah. uh, yes when living a comfortable relatively comfortable life in a society you need sometimes to be confronted with other aspects of life and um, so, um, for instance, there is a word, some words of wisdom from the Uglala Sioux tribe that says that truth can come with two faces. The sad face that cries or the happy face that laughs. But it's the same truth. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you need to hear the truth from the sad face mm. when you're very um, um, when you are uh, very uh, very um, uh, like you know high on yourself and very uh, uh, like i can do anything and there's uh, no worries in the world like don't worry be happy uh, everything like that sometimes you need to then hear the sad aspects of life mm. and if you are very sad and very uh, downtrodden in a way you need to hear the truth from the happy face mm -hmm. laughing and that could be another uh, aspect of the values of watching a tragedy and that actually re uh, resonates much with Aristotle who talks about the golden mean the mean finding mm -hmm. the mean of, ev uh, of everything that when you become too I shouldn't say comfortable, but to... Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's what you call yes. the comfort zone. Yes, uh, it's healthy to 
sometimes be dragged out of that comfort zone. So it reminds you of a sort of state of nature. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and this is, uh, I think, a fundamental uh, issue. Um, and Aristotle does talk about this distinction that you mentioned between poetry and history. Hmm. And saying that history writes about uh, is about things that that are sort of uh, photorealistic, <laughs> mm -hmm. so to speak. You know, true, yeah. more or less. Poetry is more serious and more philosophical because it deals with universals. Yeah, I think that that is uh, what you're talking about there. That that um, let's say. Okay, you have the, the idea of catharsis where you need to sort of correct yourself, like an electric shock or so. Yeah. Um, but there's also the, the, the thing of just a reminder of how, how existence actually is. Mm. And wouldn't that be a fair thing to say? I, I guess, you know, you have this expression, uh, how is it? Uh, intelligent pe people learn from other people's mistakes. Only the stupid one can only learn from your, his own mistakes. Mm. Right. I think this is also what uh, Roger Scruton and, and uh, Jordan Peterson is talking about in a conversation on, on the transcendent. Uh, how you can experience, well, you can learn from seeing other people's behavior in a book, for example. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, universals are definitely important to, to Aristotle. And, and, um, I regard that as an answer to Plato yeah. because Plato was his teacher mm. and Plato denounced poetry. And one of the reasons, we're actually going through the list here that I'm having in my head. <laughs> uh, so one of them is that it's uh, uh, that this reaction to uh, enjoying the emotions of pity and fear is mm. irrational. Mm. Another point which is maybe even stronger, is that it's not true. Right. It doesn't express truth. Right. So, one of the reasons why Plato denounced uh, poetry is that poetry is a kind of representation of reality. It's a well, mean, yeah. <laughs> mimesis. <laughs> yeah. So, it doesn't express truth. It's actually two steps away from truth because um, according to Plato's theory you have the ideal world and then you have the physical world the sensible world which is just as a shadow of the ideal world so you have the ideal horse and then whore or horse horse or whore <laughs> for that matter uh, and um, and then you have the sensible horse, which is never exactly like the ideal. Right. It's just like a shadow. But if you then paint the physical horse, it's a copy of the, or it's a representation of a representation of the truth. So yeah. it's one, one further step away from truth and it should therefore be denounced. Right. Um, so that's the moral issue he has with representation. Yes, and, and yeah, and that's how I consider uh, Aristotle's mention of the universal. He yeah. says that uh, you can right. learn something right. from 
representations or from poetry or from painting and that is that it expresses or that it present, represents something universal that says yeah. something about human nature i remember going to um to uh, uh it was rotterdam they had they had this painting by rembrandt mm -hmm. i went there with nodrum and, and some other students but when we came there it was not there anymore and nodrum said that the last time he was there it was taken to a not so nice uh, placement mm -hmm. because rembrandt research project had been there and said it was not rembrandt and when we came there it was not there there was no there were no cards of it in the, in the store Mm -hmm. So it was just gone. Hmm. And that's when I, I, I said afterwards, well, this proves that somehow ironically that, that Kant was right. People do not see the thing in itself. Because when a signature was not there, it was not a good painting anymore. Yeah. So people are unable to, to understand that the, the actual reality is physical in front of you. Yeah. They think it is something, something abstract. And this is the platonic uh, idea. That you're describing. Yeah, and that's uh, something that is uh, very, very much considered a value today. And right. uh, that okay. is who has created it, who is the painter. And uh, not what is painted, how good is it, but who. Right. Yeah. I have one story that keeps amazing me every day and the reason why it amazes me every day is because i'm reminded of it uh every day because it is a painting that hangs on my wall mm -hmm. there is a, a website that sell that uh, where you can sell whatever like craigslist the norwegian craigslist and i saw a painting for sale and i was like wow that is an amazing painting and it didn't say any price. So I called the person and said, hi, I would like to buy the painting. Can I come and have a look at it? And uh, I went over there and he was actually an art dealer, but he was closing down his shop. All right. So he was selling uh, away all the paintings. And it's this amazing painting. It's uh, like uh, one time 120 meters. Mm. And it's so skillfully painted that I was just amazed. I expected it to be a small painting, maybe a copy, copy as in a photocopy or something. It's such an amazing painting. One of the better ones I've seen for, the best one I've seen for sale at any time. And I was thinking, I must have this painting. It looked like it could belong in a museum or in a millionaire's collection. Mm. And I was asking how much is the painting? And the amount was so low that it was even affordable to a poor student. I was a student at that time. And it was uh, less than half of uh, uh, like a monthly salary or something. Mm. And the reason why it and I was I, I didn't ask him why is it so cheap but I was asking uh, why are you selling it why are you not selling it through your uh, uh, art dealing shop or something uh. and he said well it's it's unsigned right 
<clears throat> and he didn't know anything about the painting. Right. He didn't know when it was from. He said it's it's definitely before the 1900s, mm. but it's unsigned and it's uh, yeah. <clears throat> and I ended up buying it, mm. and I found out that it was made by a Dutch painter from the 1550s, Marinus van Reimersweile. Right. And it's uh, a classical piece that was made at his art shop from the 1550s. If he had known who had created it, yeah. I could not afford it. Right. You could not afford it. <laughs> we could not afford that painting. Maybe not even the National yeah. Museum could afford it. Yeah. But because he didn't know who created it, he was so removed from reality. He only saw the metaphysical aspects of the painting, mm. or he didn't see the metaphysical aspects of the painting. So what we're talking about here, one of the overarching <clears throat> themes of this conversation is the potential catastrophic idea, consequences of choosing the wrong philosophical principles as a, gui as a guide for a culture. Because if you choose principles that do not look at, in this case, the quality of the actual painting, then you take away the possibility of these paintings to survive. For example, Georges Latour, uh, this French painter, for a long time he was quite unknown. So now they think uh, perhaps a third of his production is just destroyed mm. because nobody took care of it, because he didn't have a name. The opposite of that would be the way they were thinking in the Renaissance. There's some really funny stories about uh, Michelangelo making copies of <coughs> uh, then already old master drawings, faking them, making them look old, and he would return the copy and keep the original. And they couldn't tell the difference. And of course, that's an amazing feat. And then you can think, well, if you have values that uh, are built on a respect for mimesis, for imitation, for skill, what if I, I've, that, that's my wet dream when it comes to a collector? Let's say you have a painter who makes an exact copy of, it could be a Leonardo or whatever, and really of the same quality. And then the collector thinks, well, that is newly made. I'll, that will probably last longer. I think I'll have the copy. You can keep the Leonardo. That's virtue. Because then you are able to judge the skill of the quality of the actual work. And when it comes to, to uh, Aristotle, um, I think it cannot be underlined enough the immense importance that he had for uh, creating a respect for creation of images. And, uh, you know, this so-called increasing freedom of the painters in the Renaissance that, that people talk about has to do with at least two things that are, are not uh, often mentioned. It has to do with Aristotle creating a respect for mimesis, an admiration for the ability to imitate, and his uh, defense, I guess you could say, well, at least in the face of Plato's influence, of the narrative. And it shows you, I mean, 
the Renaissance is the perfect example of how important basic philosophical principles are for the survival of what is created in the culture. Yeah, and that comes back to some of the values that I mentioned in the beginning, as do you consider it a craft yeah. or is the craft not as important? Because if you consider it a craft, the product alone right. is the importance. Right. You don't ask, in general, mm. when you see a house, oh, who was the carpenter of this house? <laughs> Or, oh, it's Olsen. Well, it's not a good house then. Yeah. Uh, of course, you can ask it if you see several houses that are made by the same carpenter. Well, you would ask because you're impressed by it. Yes, exactly. You want the same carpenter. But not having like a stone face and then saying, who created, who built this house? Oh, it was this guy. Oh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. I have to buy this house just because this carpenter made it. So just to put it on the uh, extreme here. Uh, But the point is that if it's considered a craft, the product alone is of importance. Right. And um, I remember when I became aware of the consequences around regarding something as a craft or not. That was... I was taking the test. You know about the test. Are the you a test. kitsch? The test. Are you a kitsch person or an artist? Uh, it's the test on worldwidekitsch.com. Mm. Um, and I remember one of the questions was something like, um, and yeah, as you know, that if you're a kitsch person, that is Aristotle. If you're an artist, that is Immanuel Kant. Mm. And um, they tend to have different answers to the same question. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah. yeah. So one of the questions were, um, who is the best, who is most qualified to right. judge a sculpture? Is it a sculptor or an independent uh, critic? And to me, when I read that, I was like, of course it's the sculptor it it and i had never thought about it before because it's so common today that it has to be an independent uh, and uh, right uh, and uh, objective uh, uh, critic and i became a bit ashamed of myself being a philosopher (laughs) talking about paintings and sculptures that's that's new. I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> Probably you will never hear it again. No. <laughs> and so what I realized is that I'm sitting here as a philosopher talking about painting and I hardly knew how to use a brush. Right. And uh, I decided I had to learn more about uh, painting, at least the basics. Mm. Of it, and it has um, really, it has been such a great experience learning how to think while uh, painting. It's such a different way of thinking, mm-hmm. and it uh, it definitely has affected um, how how to philosophize about painting uh, at all. Because yeah. right, because you you think with your eyes. Yeah. 
and uh, it becomes something that is not removed from reality in a way that it is based on a certain kind of inspiration or some kind of gift that you have but it is hard fucking work that is required to make a masterpiece or a good painting yeah and um, that's where you have mr aristotle right yeah uh that what strikes me about the modern way of thinking is that instead of concrete objective ideas you get abstract ones where you're not certain about what you shall uh, say you have to think about with your social antennas instead of your in- integrated knowledge yeah. and there's two, two examples uh, th- that amazed me reading about Illy Repin how <coughs> in Tsarist Russia if you were in the military and of course you know all the Russian novels are about some girl wanting to marry some military man well not all the Russians uh, but uh, Hashtag not all Russians, <laughs> but there's some Englishmen too. Anyway, uh, uh, climbing in the hierarchy of the military, you had to be noble, of noble descent, family. Uh, but in painting, that was not a rule. So Illarepin, because there were objective criteria to, if something appeared to be living, then he could become the greatest painter of Russia. Because you can see that this is not just red paint, it's a red cloak. This is not just some uh, 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 fleshy color, it's flesh. You, because the, the, the uh, virtue is about transforming paint into a cloud or into skin or something like that. So there were certain objective criteria, and, and that's what I've been saying also uh, to my students, that what I teach is not my style or Nerdrum's style, or Rembrandt's style. You can see the same basic things in Chinese uh, uh, silk painting from the 18th century, or in Monk, or in Rembrandt, or whatever, when it comes to creating a three-dimensional form. And that's the objective standard. Mm. Then you get, uh, I think this is a, a, a question of being conscious, then you get the other side, which is, I remember talking to a figurative sculptor and he was reading a book on de Kooning, the abstract uh, expressionist. Mm, yeah. And at the same time, we were talking about also Thomas Kincaid who made this, uh, this um, deer by the pond and all these things, you know. Oh. And uh, of course, a very low stature socially because he was filthy rich, as they say. Mm. Uh, and I said to him, well, why are you reading a biography on de Kooning and you're laughing at Kincaid? Because you know that Kincaid, you're much closer to Kincaid than to de Kooning. Ah, yeah. Because there are certain criteria, you know, after all, mm-hmm. about spatial depth in these things. And, uh, and he didn't understand this at all. Because he was thinking with his social antennas through abstract uh, values instead of concrete, physical objective values about what is a good painting, what is not a good painting. And of course that has to do with creating three-dimensional form. But uh, so when we're then talking about uh, about tragedy being somehow, you know, a depiction of universals, you have Plato who says that, well, this is just a, well, temporaneous copy, so to speak. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you have 
uh, what Jordan Peterson has mentioned that <laughs> when he talks about Dostoevsky, it is even more true because it's a condensed version of reality. And then you're back to expressions of universality, mm. not just a, a naturalistic description, but something which, which is eternally valid. Mm. And I guess that also plays into the hand of this thing about uh, Plato, who on the other hand could accept mimesis if it was a strict copy. Not, do not add anything, do not give it pathos or sentimentality, just a strict copy. This is what he calls uh, uh, simulacra. Yeah. And what he denounces is the phantasma, where you start creating this drama, these great, great stories, right? Yeah. That, that really grips you. Uh, it's, it's always so useful to think, what is the opposite? Yeah. What is the opposite of the universal? If it sounds like, oh, it's so mystical, the universal or something. But what is the opposite? The opposite is the particular and subjective. Mm. The purely subjective. And how do that function as communication? It right, because doesn't it doesn't function... pertain to anyone else but you. Yeah, I often think of the opposite of the archetypes or of the universal as gossip. Mm -hmm. Gossip, right? that's particular right. and subjective. Yeah. You know what uh, John did to Mary? Yeah. It's particular about John, it's particular about Mary. Right. And it's, it's a way of degenerating a story instead of elevating it. So without knowing it, the gossip, and often it is, can be a universal story, but you're making it particular. Yeah. Because you're talking about, oh, it's so important what he did and what she did and how he answered and what yeah. she answered and what I think about it because yeah. I think that he's an idiot mm. or something. Yeah. But often it's a universal story about love uh, or uh, unfaithfulness or something like that. Um, so this is uh, tunnel vision. Yes. So instead of seeing that universal aspect of it and actually making it something that you can tell, a story you can tell your grandchildren. Mm. You're making it something that you can tell your neighbor right now. Do you know what? You right. Know? And uh, so uh, that's like a, a, an easy way to see what is useful with the universal and how approachable it can be. So this is why Aristotle says that poetry is more serious and more philosophical than, than histor history writing. Yeah. Which, of course, is on a higher level than what you're describing now, but yeah. still. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, it's not more... Uh, it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. Right. That you right. actually try to, uh, to see the essence of things and to see the essence of things can be to, you have a story and you parenthesize some things, some aspects of it. Mm. Uh, the philosopher Husserl, he talks about parenthesizing aspects in order to find the idos, the essence of something. You mentioned the things that are too personal. Mm -hmm. This is kind of the beef I have with, the, for example, Frida Kahlo. 
the Mexican painter. Yeah. Is what she does is very much based on the the need to know her biography about this accident and the Mexican muralist she was married to and their affair or whatever it was. Uh, and that is something that makes it too confined to specifics so that when you come to another time where you don't know these prejudices, it doesn't pay off to adhere to those prejudices. Then the work doesn't stand on its own. Right. Mm. Uh, so... Okay, so, so to be specific about, about, uh, about what tragedy actually is, what, what does Aristotle say when it comes to you know, the technical definition? What is a tragedy? What is it an imitation of? Can you lay out the case for that? Just to mention one more, to, because that is more um, directly related to tragedy and uh, Titian. Mm. which I think was so interesting when I read Put Farkin's amazing book. It's excellent, yeah. It's, it's excellent. He mentions, or he gives you certain directions on how to, um, on how to create something that has the effect on the audience that you want, and that is of pity and horror yeah so um and what is so interesting is that if you use the poetics as a point of departure you can theorize so much about it not only theorize you can experiment what creates the best emotion and that is where titian was fantastic i i read somewhere in that book that he had an architect uh, a friend who was an architect who helped him design the background mm. or to draw the background of the building mm. to make it most emotional to, to awake most fear among right. the audience right. and one of it <laughs> was that the bricks yeah. were supposed to be large and rough Right. They were not supposed to be smooth marble. That is amazing that you can use the architecture in the background to make the most dramatic effect. And it's supposed to be dark and it's supposed to be everything. And so, although it is not mentioned in Aristotle that you're supposed to make the bricks (laughs) rough, but that is how you can use it. So it's a way of thinking that unfolds naturally. Yes. And so this reminds me of what um, uh, Erde Nerdrum and myself uh, were talking about in front of Caravaggio in the, in the documentary on Nerdrum. How everything, and this is, and I know Put Farke was, was, uh, had started a, a manuscript on Caravaggio, I think in relation to Aristotle. Uh, so what, what Caravaggio does is specifically Aristotelian in that all the things that are in the painting, all the effects are there to underline the story. When you have the, the raising of the cross, it's being crucified upside down and the raising of the cross, you see that they've, uh, they've uh, uh, pushed aside a stone and you see the, 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 uh, <clears throat> the depression of this, from the stone in the ground. 
And they're, so they've been busy moving around, getting this cross up that they're pushing. Yeah. See? So that little thing there is there because it creates more drama. There's been movement. You can, there's been something that has gone before, and this is going on now, and then you have the thing that is going to happen. And I've been asking myself, what is the, what is the first step? Not the only step, but what is the first step in order to uh, revitalize the kitsch value system or the Greco-Roman value system mm. that values craftsmanship, sentimentality, pathos, and unoriginality, among others, and story. Or doesn't see originality as a point. Exactly, yeah. And... Which of these be- uh, should be first from a strategic, strategic point of view? I think the craftsmanship is the first step on the way. Mm. I'm not sure about it, if you have any thoughts about it, but uh, I'm, I would be happy to hear that. But in the beginning... Um, when the fine art was developed, craftsmanship lost its value or became secondary. It didn't yeah, they, lose... century, yeah, they yes. start talking about art or craft. Yeah. Art versus craft. Yeah. Right. And um, it didn't... It, it's a complicated relationship between those because is it... When it's art, is it still craft and everything? But um, at least the craftsmanship became secondary Mm. and as a final consequence it can lose its um, um, its important uh, importance altogether and i think it easily becomes a um, vicious circle because when people know when it's not when it's no longer required for art to be skillfully crafted then that is not the basis of what it's judged on Mm, mm. and then the viewers don't have to know anything about the craft Mm. and then the craftsmen or the artists Mm. don't have to know much about the craft and then the appreciation uh, disappear in a way from the audience as well yeah because they don't know what to look for yeah well this is what you discovered learning how to paint exactly when learning how to paint at least the basics i knew how much hard work that goes into a good painting you can no longer afford to be what what they call patronizing because when you know too much about it you have to take into account that creating a bad portrait at least is quite difficult because there are certain things you have to know in order for it to be a portrait. Mm. Right? Yeah. So then, then, you, then you get into... But I wanted to, to um, challenge you a bit on this thing about, okay, what well, is craft the most important? Because what I see, that is a, there is a certain trap in that in the following sense um, that... A lot of painters, I think, can focus only on that. Mm-hmm. 
and because they shall make real art, not this uh, fake modern art, but real art. And so they only focus on that. And, <clears throat> and you know, getting the proportions in order, color is correct, but they forget storytelling. And I think, and this is something that the, the art sociologist uh, Doug Sulil has mentioned, that the basic thing here, and this is partly me too, the ba basic thing is not abstraction versus figurative painting, but as, as Sulil mentioned, it's storytelling. Mm. Because there's a lot of figurative art today, completely expressionless faces, no action going on. So I think that the idea of telling a story is, is a really grand driving force. And that is what Aristotle uh, defends and makes a case for. And that's what created the peak of the Renaissance. So I think you could say that, of course, this is meaningless if you don't have it paired with craft. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the consciousness of uh, Aristotle, reading Aristotle, I think would really help uh, when it comes to creating a new renaissance, as is normally talked about. Yeah, I think um, I definitely see your point. And uh, I'm just thinking from a more, not necessarily what is most important, mm. because I think that's very hard to to say what is important, mm. uh, most important. But Plato meant that poetry was a kind of an inspiration mm. that did not use reason. Mm. And that is somewhat the situa situation that we see today, that yeah. the artist is regarded as someone that has a inspiration. And if you ask that person, uh, the artist, what, how did you make this painting, if it is a modernist abstract painting or something, you seldom uh, receive a very uh, explanatory answer. Mm. Uh, it, uh, that reminds me <coughs> of um, the friends of Franz uh, Schubert. Mm -hmm. Schubert, he wrote the composer. A, yes, the uh, composer, my favorite. He wrote, together with Tchaikovsky, he wrote so many pieces in such a short time mm. uh, because he died at the age of 30-something. Yeah. And uh, he, it was said that he could write large pieces down the sheets. Um, he wrote the notes down without making any corrections. Mm. And that is very uncommon. Yeah. So there were, uh, and he had a group of friends, and they were divided into two groups. One of them, like one of the uh, group of friends, were saying that he had a divine gift. He yeah. must have had direct contact with God. Yeah. Because it is impossible to write that many pieces that are really extraordinary. They are not uh, simple pieces. They are uh, classic after classic after classic. He wrote so many fantastic pieces, so he must have had direct contact with God. Mm. The other group of friends were saying, no, we know how much he has worked for this and how much he has suffered for this. And that's 
two different answers. Mm. One of them is the Platonic saying that he had a certain inspiration mm. that does not um, uh, relate to rationality. Mm. While the others say the Aristotelian response, this is a skill that mm. follow rational rules. Mm. My view is that <clears throat> throughout history, if we start today, as far as I uh, see it, you have the two value systems, art and kitsch. And they are basically new versions of the old Plato-Aristotle dichotomy. Oh, yeah. Uh, there are so many, almost to the detail, similarities between Plato and Immanuel Kant, who, of course, was decisive for uh, the fine art system. Uh, I mean, you have Plato has the idea of the possessed poet. Kant has the idea of the uh, inspired genius. Mm. And Kant, of course, also says directly that imitation is in direct opposition to genius. And you are first creating art when you do not know what you're doing. And both have, uh, Kant specifically, but both have a, a concept of aesthetical indifference, not being gripped by what you see. Plato has this idea of simulacra. You just make an exact copy. It's still in, in mimesis, but it's less bad than if you create a dramatic story. And, and of course, Kant has the aesthetical indifference where, uh, where he says plainly that if you are gripped by the work, emotionally gripped by it, really like in the Aristotelian sense, basically, then this is barbaric. And to judge a work as, as, uh, as a good work because of that is just completely uh, brain dead, you know. And, and both of them have uh, an idea of the bureaucrat deciding what is good or not. And by that, I mean the philosopher working for the state shall sit and judge if this is good or not, because of course the genius doesn't know what he himself has done. Mm. If Plato, if Kant is Plato, who is Aristotle today? It's difficult to find one Aristotle today, uh, I would say, um, within um, Within much of his philosophy, I would say that Ayn Rand is the closest one. Right. But not so much uh, in uh, aesthetics. No, I agree. No. Um, she has the points of rationality and uh, about being uh, empirical, having an empirical uh, viewpoint. But she was maybe too influenced by her uh, time and uh, cultural preferences when it came to mm. uh, aesthetics and to see I, I i i think it's useful to com to compare how plato was the uh, uh, the point of departure when aristotle was rediscovered yeah 
So we have been through, uh, I think, almost all of these points, but just to uh, have the, um, just to have them listed up, mm. some of them. And one of them is that the creator, to use that word, well, that's what not, poet means. Yes, does not mean uh, does not use reason, but has a certain uh, or uncertain inspiration. Oh, that's Plato, yeah. Yeah, yes. This is Plato, the point of departure before right. okay. Aristotle was rediscovered. Right. The poet or the painter had a certain kind of inspiration. And also, the representation or mimesis was not looked upon as something positive. It was something negative because it was untruthful. So therefore, you have discussions <coughs> such as should it be uh, fictional or should it be historical? Mm. And then one last point is that poetry or tragedy awakes these wrong emotions mm. that are scorned upon by Plato. They're not rational, they're not right. Mm. And as we have talked about with tragedy, that you actually enjoy having the feeling of pity and terror. And just think about it, how ra- I- irrational it is. Listening to a Schubert sonata, starting to cry. They are just tones that are played on a piano. Or watching a sunrise. They're just electromagnetic waves. It's irrational to have a strong emotional uh, reaction to it. And this was the basis point of Plato, to which, uh, from Plato to which Aristotle responded. Mm. And he responded to the first point that this was inspiration, not using reason. No, it's a skill where you use um, rational rules to yeah. create a story. And it's not a further removal away from truth because it is a representation of something, a copy of something and not being real. He removes that metaphysical bullshit and says, no, this is a representation of something universal. It Mm. teaches you something about the human experience. It has a certain value. And then as the third point, that uh, as a response to that these are irrational emotions to get uh, feelings out of uh, um, uh, a piano piece or a sunrise. Yes, says Aristotle, but it's still the case. So he is not a denier of reality and saying that, well, this is not how it should, should be, be. <laughs> he says it is how well, it is and it is called catharsis right and then you're uh, you're into something here because it strikes me that plato is not very it seems that he's not very knowledgeable about human psyche campbell talks about this how uh, he's invited to talk about myths and schizophrenia you find it on, on Spotify, his lectures. You can hear it there. And 
I am not no expert on schizophrenia, but this is just a recount of what he's saying. So apparently, there are certain sort of rituals or transitional uh, experiences that are necessary for a human being. And if that is not experienced, if you do not go through these rituals that tell you that you are in a different state, stage of life and these things, in the worst case, you go into schizophrenia. Because the, he talks about, how, is it, how does he say it? It's, it's a biological necessity to have your life confirmed, to see in an external story what is going on in your life, how it is to be a human being. Hmm. And that is, uh, when, you, when you contrast it with schizophrenia, perhaps it's not so immoral to experience the joy of, <laughs> of a tragedy. <laughs> mm. and, but, but this is, you see this also in uh, Ludwig Gies, one of the kitsch critics, is talking about, it. his point is that there's the, the idea of the kitsch man, the way of misusing a painting or a drama or whatever, is an attitude. And he talks about Augustine in the fourth century. And Augustine has seen a tragedy and he's so gripped by it and he's, so, he's loving it so much. And afterwards, the shame. He had forgotten God. And how could he feel this gluttony, this you know, uh, joy of seeing someone else suffer? Mm. And that's where the truth comes in and makes you unempathetic towards the actual necessity of a human being to be confirmed in that, what, what, like you've been talking about, that you, you get the confirmation that life is actually like this. Hmm. That's also another thing I've been thinking about as a possible explanation or definition of catharsis. I, I, I still find that fascinating. And I think Aristotle has some of the answers and we have been into some of the answers, but it's still fascinating to think more about. Mm. And I think another aspect of catharsis, that enjoyment of feeling pity and terror, mm. is to actually be confronted with the human destiny. Mm. Nietzsche talks about something similar in uh, his birth of tragedy, uh, using the image of um, of looking down, looking having a glimpse into a deep, dark well, mm. just having this scary little glimpse into that dark, heavy human destiny. Mm. It's kind of a orientation towards reality in a very uh, deep and sincere and direct yeah. and hurtful way but which is which has the effect of not hiding from life mm. I've often been thinking 
that, for instance, death is one of these aspects that is a part of the human destiny. And I think it's so important that humans are in touch with one's own death, knowing that we are supposed to die. Not to be morbid in any sense, but just knowing that life is a journey towards death. Mm. And I have two comparisons that I use in my own mind. And the one is of the, one can say, the typical modern man, unfortunately, because we have become very distant from our own death. They were actually just a hundred years ago, they were more connected towards their death. Uh, talking about it, taking pictures with a dead uh, sibling uh, to have a memory. Today we won't touch the dead. And the image I have of the typical modern man have almost never talked about death with someone. Mm. Thinks about it maybe very occasionally before sleeping or something and then, oh, I need to take a sleeping pill or something. And on the deathbed gets that extreme anxiety and panic mm. and screams in death anxiety. That must be horrible. I don't find a stronger word. And the other image I have is the Buddhist monk. He knows when he's about to die because he has used his whole life on meditation and contemplation. It, you, doesn't, you, you don't have to be a Buddhist monk to contemplate. And upon the moment of death, he's laughing. Not in a ridiculing manner, but in a confirming manner mm. because he knows He's been waiting for this his whole life. Yeah. And that can be one of the effects of catharsis. To actually have... To be in touch with your own human destiny. This has been pure joy. Carl Korsnes, thank you for coming to the Cave of the Poets. Thank you.